to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. And we, once again, have a couple of hours of going against the grain for you. And uh, as usual, there's... uh, there's a lot. There's a lot that's happening right now. And we are in just a couple of minutes going to be talking about Hurricane Ian, which has been gaining power and is now, as I see, just shy of a Category 5 hurricane that is uh, upon Florida as we speak. So we are going to talk about how evacuations are going, how preparations are going and um, how these monster storms form in the first place. We are going to also talk more about pipelines and pipeline politics, and we're going to bring back an oldie but a goodie, a pipeline battle that you might have forgotten about, but that Canada's TC Energy uh, certainly has not. We are going to talk about the rocky start to the White House's U.S. Pacific Islands Summit. We are going to preview some of the most important cases the Supreme Court is going to take up in this term. We are going to talk about prison reform plans and the creeping over-criminalization of life in the United States. We are going to get into some of the wilder allegations from Maggie Haberman's book about the Trump administration. So, as usual, it is going to be a, a full show here. This is going to be a full show. It's going to be a lot of fun, too, because we're going to interview my cousin. Yeah. My favorite cousin. Oh, boy. Wow. Saying that. coming, Just coming right out and saying it, John. Bold move. Yeah. Another story that I wanted to talk about, and, and we will get into this a little bit more um, tomorrow, uh, but the White House today is convening a conference on hunger, nutrition, and health. And as the New York Times puts it, this is the first since 1969 when Richard Nixon hosted a summit that aimed to put an end to hunger for all time, um, which I guess did not work. So Joe Biden's summit encompasses both hunger and diet-related diseases, uh, issues that look very different sometimes but are often connected by poverty. I want to tell you a little bit more about what the New York Times has to say about this event. It notes that Biden's summit comes at a fragile moment for the U.S. economy as the expiration of stimulus efforts and surging food prices have pushed food insecurity to levels not seen since early in the pandemic. It also notes that the summit is taking place at a time when lines at food banks are swelling, food prices are rising at their fastest rate in four decades, and fears of a recession that could toss more Americans into unemployment lines are growing. And it's The Times is reporting on this as though all of these factors it just listed are um, the equivalent of a hurricane, which you just can't do anything about or predict or control. I want to point out that a month ago, Joe Biden was pointing to the July jobs report and bragging that unemployment was at 3.5 percent, a low of 50 years. Right. And so I wonder if almost full employment you know, according to the the way that we calculate it anyway, which has some serious shortcomings. Mm-hmm. But should mm-hmm. should low unemployment coincide with a country in which 10 percent of the population is food insecure? This is according right. to the USDA. And The Times was also presenting this as the U.S., uh, you know, does does quite well when it comes to food insecurity, much better than other countries, with only 10% of the population, which means 13 and a half million people, having difficulty providing enough food for their family members. Do you think that is something? They missed the entire point there. The the point is that there should be zero food insecurity in the the wealthiest 
country in the world. When yeah. we pay billions of dollars every year to farmers to not grow food, we yeah. should have zero hunger in this country. Bragging that we're doing better than like a Burkina Faso and a, exactly. a Moldova, maybe. Like, come on. So the Times tells us that. The Times uh, blandly tells us that eliminating hunger is a formidable goal and one that has eluded generations of policymakers. I feel like, well, then maybe we should take another look at these economic policies. And on the topic exactly. of recession, why are we heading into a recession again? I mean, I know the Federal Reserve is a totally independent, uh, but the Federal Reserve is also actively trying to throw people out of work right now. And, you know, maybe there's another way to check inflation. I just I feel like if the goal of ending hunger in this incredibly wealthy and well-resourced country is elusive, maybe it's because we are trying to pursue that goal while also trying to ensure that American corporations have as much control over the labor force as possible. Maybe these two goals cannot exist side by side. Uh, maybe charity is never going to be a remedy for a governing structure that exists primarily to protect corporate profits. You know, maybe in 50 years that's worth considering. Uh, but sure, like totally agree. The, uh, totally you know, agree. move nutrition labels around and put them on the front of food and not on the back, and that's going to help someone making $15 an hour make better choices. Right. Right. It's so, so You know, we've we've got to take a look too at um at moving and I and I'll preface this by saying I know this will never happen. <laughs> but at least in a democratic administration we ought to be taking a look at transitioning uh uh budgetary funds away from uh the military for for current operations. There should be no current operations and into things like food security yeah. or medical care or Joe Biden's pet project of curing cancer. As you, you know, say, there's there's not, plenty of money. The not going to happen in a no, Democratic administration, but maybe we should have a viable political party that will make that that case to the American there people, you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yep, you're exactly right. Um, the other thing that I noticed here, this is not a hugely important story, uh, and I am not, you know, whatever, I, I was never going to vote for Pete Buttigieg. I don't think that he is, uh, you know, he, he doesn't inspire me politically, but he's also like not somebody who I loathe more than other people. Yes. But I will say he is proving to be uh, a, a, an example of why cabinet posts shouldn't be used as incubators for baby president. Uh, yeah, presidents. We have spoken about his notable absence during negotiations between railway companies and unions. And now a group of senators that include members of his own party are asking why the Transportation Department missed a May deadline to deliver an updated tourism infrastructure strategy. Um, this national tourism strategy and strategic plan was supposed to assess the U.S.'s transportation network and provide strategies for improving it with regard to tourism and long-haul passenger travel. It was supposed to project tourism volumes for the next 20-year period. And um, though the story knows that the Trump Transportation Department missed its own deadline by about two years, you know, whatever, the Democrats are supposed to right. be better, aren't they? And so, right. you know, the, the bipartisan infrastructure law that passed last year included a provision uh, that instructed the the 
Transportation Department to update the document to account for the state of tourism coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, back in May, Buttigieg was testifying that his department was waiting for something from the federal government, uh, from the Commerce Department, its sort of tourism input. But that was released in June. And so, again, you know, our, our transportation secretary, who has been pretty absent for someone who, you yeah. know, uh, we would have considered, uh, you know, waiting in the wings, right? If Joe Biden's yes. not going to run, you have to consider Pete Buttigieg a contender. Just gone. Just gone from the public eye. It really is. And I will say that I've noticed uh, just in the last, I'm going to say, three to five days, a change in the political media here in the United States at places like 538 and Politico and mm. The Hill and even The New York Times. They're treating people to judge less with kid gloves than they have in the past. They seem to be more willing to criticize him, not for anything he's done. But as you point out, for what he hasn't done, mm -hmm. this inaction as secretary of one of the biggest departments in government, transportation, uh, it's just not going to cut it. And it's not going to help him be a viable presidential candidate in the next two or six years. No, it's really not. And again, it's not like transportation uh, secretary is like a super flashy position, but you're supposed to do something. <laughs> you know, you're yeah, supposed to like, be there. I mean, I know who Elaine Chao was, right? It's not as though she's one of those exactly. secretaries whose name you never remember. Anyway. Um, exactly. I know we have our next guest on the line, and uh, I, I think that we all skip this break and move straight into that conversation uh, as Hurricane Ian, you know, smashes into the coast of Florida. Uh, it made landfall in Cuba as a Category 3 storm. It is now approaching Category 5. Uh, it's, you know, we, we have live cameras on highways in Tampa and talking to people in Sarasota, Florida, who um, have not been evacuated. And so we're going to talk about, you know, how, how this storm came to be what it was and how we can better prepare for storms of this magnitude. We're joined by Denise Isaac. She's a meteorologist born and raised in Panama, who has always been obsessed with the weather, especially thunderstorms and hurricanes. She served as meteorologist for TV networks like NBC and Telemundo. Denise, thanks for joining us. No problem. It's my pleasure. Michelle, how are you? I'm great. I mean, I'm not in Florida right now, so uh, slightly more comfortable. What what does this storm have the potential to do uh, to the communities in its path? So this storm is just going to be is a historic storm. Mm -hmm. It's just going to devastate the areas that it does touch. Um, the eye wall is large. Um, it's already coming on shore near Sanibel Island, Captiva Island, that's in southwest Florida. It may even cause some cities to pretty much disappear near the, near the shore because it's coming in with such a strong wind, such an impact. And Naples already reported five um, feet of storm surge. So, you know, they have now record storm surge in this area, and this is only the beginning as this storm gets close to the coast. We're expecting, you know, water coming in from the Gulf of Mexico in, in a way that they haven't seen in years. Um, and then this storm is going to just slow down. That's the bad news about Ian 
it's slowing down. When it moved through Cuba, it was moving north at 10 miles per hour. Now it's moving at nine miles per hour. You may think, well, it's just one mile per hour. But that's the longer it's going to sit in Florida, just drenching them with rain, then the storm surge, which means water that's going to be pushed in from the Gulf of Mexico. So it's going to be um, inundation coming in from the water, from the ocean, and then rain falling from the sky, which... Some uh, cities may pick up anywhere between 15 to 20 inches of rain in just a matter of 24 to 48 hours. So they're getting water from both directions. So flooding is going to be the main issue. And a lot of people in this area where it's actually uh, making landfall from Punta Gorda to Cape Coral didn't really evacuate. So that's my main worry out of this one because a lot of people evacuated in the Tampa area, but here a lot of people decided to just hunker down and stay in. So even going up, let's say you live in a three-story, you know, high-rise, but the water may reach the second floor. So then how do you make it down? So that's my main worry um, with this storm. So it's going to, you know, just bring a lot of flooding, a lot of devastation. And even yesterday, we had several reports of tornadoes mm-hmm. in the South Florida area, two tornadoes in Broward County, one in Miami-Dade. Um, threat for tornadoes continues today mm-hmm. in Central Florida. So from, let's say, um, areas like Sebring all the way north into Orlando. Mm-hmm. This storm is just packing, you know, coming with a punch, coming with a vengeance, and it's bringing a little bit of everything. I want to ask about. I mean, yeah, you say it's a historic storm, and I, I think I saw that it is. It, it was expected to be uh, the fifth most powerful storm to make landfall in the U.S. And I want to ask about uh, how we should understand climate change as an influence on on hurricanes, because I I have seen some research that suggests climate change is allowing storms to intensify faster and to move slower, which, as you say, is always really dangerous. It just gives a storm more time to dump water on your head. Um, But I mean, at the same time, I think we have to recognize that big hurricanes in this region are not new, right? It is not new to have these big, powerful storms. So I wonder if you can talk about what kind of, you know, what kind of trends there are and what causes might be driving them. Well, we are seeing the trend of the water is warming faster. I mean, two two degrees or so um, in a matter of 10 years. So the waters in the Gulf of Mexico are warmer than 10 years ago. The the winds are, are different um, every time we continue. Every year, the steering flow is a little bit different. So the steering flow is what uh, guides storms. So that's what's happening with Ian right now. The steering flow isn't strong enough like it usually is. So that's why Ian may sit along Florida for the longer time. So, you know, instead of just mainly talking, oh, it's all about climate change, it's about what happens every year. Mm -hmm. So this year, in August, it was a historical season for the Atlantic hurricane season because we had no named storms in the month of August. That hasn't happened in 25 years. Mm. So the water in the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico just really hot. You know, it's summertime, so they, it, it was ready. It was ready to pick up a storm and allow it to intensify because warm waters are almost like adding fuel to the fire, right? So if you have water temperatures 85 to 89 degrees or even, let's say, 90 degrees because that area of, uh, south of Jamaica, it's really, really warm. And we don't have the strong winds aloft, which, you know, think of the atmosphere as a hamburger, right? So we have the lower bun is the surface, the meat is the middle part, and then the top bun is the the steering flow. If we have warm water and this storm is just, 
you know, just soaking it all in. And the top bun, if we don't have it there, you know, that's just going to allow this storm to just explode like it has. So I, I, I like to focus more on the now rather than more in the climatological base. Mm-hmm. Yes, climate change is playing a role on storms, you know, getting larger. But we just have to realize that the Atlantic or at least the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico have, haven't been tapped so far this year. So it just had all the ingredients necessary for this storm to be as strong as it is. Mm-hmm. And the difference between a Cat 4 and a Cat 5 at this point, it really doesn't make that much of a difference because at 150 five miles per hour. It just needs to be 157 to be a cat five. So, you know, the danger with this storm is almost cat five strength. Right. And what, you know, as you say, this happens every year. Uh, what should communities do in the long term to be able to better withstand storms like these, especially if, you know, we do think like waters are warming, it's going to have an impact. Uh, these storms certainly are not going away. And if you want to do, I guess, less less rebuilding and more preparation, what what would you recommend? I would recommend for those who want to live near the water, you know, because you may have a hurricane today, but not in the next 10 years, just build a code, build a house strong enough to withstand strong winds. But just know that water, you know, we underestimate the power of water all the time. Mm-hmm. Water can just create damage because it may it may just soak into your door, soak into your house, and then ruin everything that's inside. So build a code. If there are evacuation, you know, if you're in an evacu- evacuation zone, get out of there. Listen to your local officials. Um, but I know a lot of people who used to live near the water in Miami who decided to move inland because because of this surge. You know, even with the astronomical high tides, when there is that full moon, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. like the Brickell area in Miami floods easily. So I know a lot of my friends moved inland because they're just trying to avoid that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you don't want to move away from the coast, I would just say, Build to code, build houses that have windows that are strong enough to withstand hurricanes. And when a hurricane comes, always evacuate if you can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Denise Isaac, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. That was meteorologist Denise Isaacs. We're going to take a quick break here on Radio Sputnik, but we're not done talking about this hurricane. When we come back, we are going to talk to someone who is in its path uh, and who has been, uh, I think, has evacuated. We'll find out when we have this conversation. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Millions of Floridians are under mandatory evacuation orders as Hurricane Ian approaches landfall. The storm is currently a Category 4 and is expected to strengthen into a massive Category 5 before it fully slams into the Florida coast south of Tampa. But of the millions of Floridians being ordered to leave, most are actually staying. Grocery stores have been stripped bare, and there's plenty of gasoline. Just hours before landfall, it's now too dangerous to leave, and most people are sheltering in place. We are joined by my favorite cousin, and I have 
lots and lots of cousins. Zane Argerus. Zane is hunkering down in Dunedin, Florida, a suburb of Tampa, which is expected to receive the brunt of the storm. Welcome, Zane. Welcome, John. How are you? Doing well, thanks. How are you? Hey, I want to begin, Zane, with uh, what it's like in Dunedin right now. Has the rain begun, or are you just dealing with wind? It's, it's raining a little bit, but uh, there's there's wind. Uh, supposedly, it's going to get worse later on tonight. Uh, we kind of like dodged a little bit of it because it made a turn. It was supposed to come straight at us. It just made a yes. turn yesterday to uh, Fort Myers area. So which is probably about a two-hour drive from us, which we're going to be out of the worst of it. We're still going to get some kind of wind, you know, out of it, and a lot of rain. They just said it's going to be a really, really big rainmaker. Zane, when people say they're sheltering in place, what exactly does that mean? How do you prepare for something as massive as a Category 5 storm? Well, if it's Category 5, it's really hard to really stay in place if you really want to. I mean, you could, you know, my house is boarded up. I've got enough food. I've got enough batteries. I made sure everything's charged. Uh, we have a generator, so when the power does go out, and I mean, you can't run it when it's raining, but uh, as soon as that stops, you can start your generator up until the power comes on. Um, if, it's, uh, if it's a Category 5, most of us do kind of get out of the way there. We kind of go somewhere else where it's not going to be too bad because we've been in Florida long enough to know uh, we survived ones and twos and threes, but it gets to a five, it's a little concerning. It's tougher, yeah. I'm looking at a video uh, from the Gulf Coast, and while outbound traffic is heavy, uh, it's actually moving, and the roads are passable, uh, at least up to a couple of hours ago. Why have so many people decided to remain in their homes uh, this time, when this storm is supposed to be so strong? Well, in, in my area, it's... Uh going to be a strong so those people are going to stay there now my understanding the people that are down in like the uh in the fort myers area below sarasota they didn't realize it was coming till the last minute uh right last right cash out for their first one or the other we, we were we were told uh for the whole week coming our way for us to get ready for it they, were, they weren't even told that down there they didn't know they didn't realize it was going to hit Right, because it just took that that southern hook uh, yesterday. I, I also want to ask you what um, state services are like in a situation like this. The storm is going to hit tomorrow. Then let's say it passes in a day. And then what? what? What does the state start doing? Does it focus on restoring electricity? Is it to find shelter for people who have been made um, uh, homeless? What What happens the day after the storm? Well, first of all, they're going to start to go in there. They're going to assess everything, how to get the electricity back on, because you're been through these. I've been in Florida for 36 years now, and you're going to have a lot of down trees, branches, possibly a lot of fences in the yards, in the streets. They're going to try to clean that up to get the electricity and the power back on. And those people that lost their homes are going to be in that shelter, so they find them a place to stay if there's a relative or in a hotel somewhere, hold them up till they can figure out what's happening. Uh, as far as the gas stations go, usually by now there's no more gas. They've done depleted that from everybody. Just hurry up and, you know, which they call a lot of that's panic buying, but everybody's got gas so if they have to leave town. They're fooled and ready to go. Then you got people that have generators 
to get their little gas cans and all that filled up. So then they have to come in and they have to, uh, you know, replenish all the gas stations too. That's that's the second thing they got to do. Oh. Right. Uh, Congressman Gus Bilirakis, uh, the, the Republican who represents the area, said yesterday, it was the, the oddest warning, it seems to me, but it made perfect sense. He was warning people in your area to be careful of animals, because in storm situations like this, alligators uh, head toward uh, higher land, snakes uh, head toward higher land, even things like wild pigs that most Floridians never see unless they go looking for them are trying to shelter. And oftentimes when they when they intersect with human beings trying to, to protect themselves and help themselves, um, odd things happen. Is, is that a real fear? Is that something that Floridians worry about in a situation like this? Well, in a certain area, I've never seen wild pigs, but I did. I have seen uh, alligators, and they they do come out across across the ponds and try to hide whatever their natural instinct is. But, um, I've never seen, you know, personally of in my neighborhood, I never saw it. But uh, I know in an area where there's a lot of alligators that have been found, uh, we've heard stories of it, you know, and we did see on the yeah. news that we'll do some once in a while they'll show that. I've never seen one yet since I've been in Florida. Huh. There's a saying in Florida, Zane, run from the water and hide from the rain. What does that mean exactly in a situation like this? Well, because a lot of it's fast, easy. <laughs> we know what the water's up. You don't want to be in the water. They don't want you to drive in there or try to get out there and get out, get out of it. So if it's starting to flood, you just stay where you're at and stay put and try to wait to it. Uh, a little so you can get out there okay we're gonna leave it there listen cuz take care of yourself be careful hide from that wind and uh, i'll talk to you in the coming days thanks for joining us oh thank you for having me and i, I really appreciate it okay cuz and, and god bless you guys and we're doing the best we can here be very very careful we'll talk to you soon thank you that was Zane Argerus. Zane lives in Dunedin, Florida, a close-in suburb of Tampa, which is expected to face some of the brunt of that storm. Hey, thanks for joining us, John. I know we have a couple of minutes before we uh, talk about the uh, new term for the Supreme Court and some of the most important cases coming up. But right. I can't believe I can't believe I forgot to mention this. When we started the show, uh, of course, we are going to talk a little bit more about these um, uh, the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. We're going to talk about yeah. the sort of Keystone XL pipeline and the legal battles facing it. I completely forgot this story uh, in Insider. Uh, it's based on a report in Der Spiegel that uh, the CIA apparently warned Germany weeks ago about a possible attack on the Nord Stream gas pipeline. So that's the headline from Insider. This is, of course, according to this German magazine, and the source for the German magazine is anonymous, an anonymous person with knowledge of the matter. And I just wonder, John, if you had any insight into how these kinds of reports, the utility of these kinds of reports and, uh, and you know, how this anonymous source might have come to speak to Der Spiegel and, uh, you know, what, what kind of seasoning maybe we should take this with, if any. Maybe we just take it at face value and the CIA is out there trying to protect 
Germany's energy sources? I think not. You know, this just seems like something right out of basic CIA training. You've got the president of the United States in, well, the the, the soon-to-be president of the United States during the campaign in 2020 saying Nord Stream 2 will not open. And when a reporter asks for a, as a follow-up, what do you mean by that when you say it will not open? He repeats himself, Nord Stream 2 will not open. Okay, that's pretty declarative, mm-hmm. pretty definitive. And then you've got uh, these these very convenient leaks now that the CIA has warned the Germans that uh, you know there's a possibility of sabotage. Well, what are the Germans supposed to do with information like that? It's not that you can just put a scuba a scuba guy down there 24/7 along the whole length of Nord Stream One and Nord Stream Two just in case somebody sabotages it. You know, when I asked our guest yesterday the question, qui bono, who benefits? The, that was a rhetorical question, of course. The only the only party that benefits in the destruction of Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, of course, is the United States. Mm-hmm. Because we're the only ones who who have as a policy uh, the, the closure of, of the Nord Stream pipelines. Yeah. So I think what happened is, I th- and I'm just speculating here, if if the CIA or the FBI are listening to the show, I have no inside information. This is just my own informed speculation. Mm-hmm. I would say that a policy decision was made at the White House to destroy these pipelines. Uh, they passed the uh, the task on to the CIA. The CIA, of course, has access to any number of submarines, including mini-subs and demolitions experts. And they're also very free to borrow experts from the military services, which they do all the time. And I think they went down there with a sub and they planted, what was it, three separate uh, charges. Yeah. And they blew up the pipeline. You know. Yeah. And I think. Now they can say to the New York Times, well, listen, you know, we we heard some bad actors were going to blow up the pipeline. So we warned the Germans a couple of weeks ago. That's just cover. That's the cover story. I mean, that's certainly what it sounds like. Also worth pointing out, Poland comes out pretty well in this, too. Uh, A new gas pipeline from Norway uh, to supply Poland just opened. And uh, there's been some noted... Polish celebration of this act of sabotage. Uh, John, a lot of people have been recalling the um, quote from the first secretary general of NATO to say, saying uh, the whole point of the organization was to keep the Soviet Union out, the Americans in and the Germans down, which, should, you know, again, like it's, it's, a, it's very neat. <laughs> the example there here. There you go. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. I, I really do think that the easiest explanation here is the correct one. I think the Americans did it because it's a major policy boost for the United States. And, you know, the, the bottom line for the U.S. here is the U.S. does not want the European Union to be dependent on Russian energy, period. Mm-hmm. And even though that may include some tough love over the, com- the course of the coming winter— I think the U.S. just got what it wanted. Uh, weird how uh, a bunch of Pacific islands today are not that willing to sign on to the U.S.'s new strategy plan for increasing engagement over there. I huh, wonder what they're 
wonder what their concerns I, I, are. Honestly, uh, I think that they're I think that they're reading the same uh, news articles that we're reading about uh, about provoking Taiwan and why mm-hmm. in the world are we doing something like this? All right, hey John, let's take a, a quick breath and uh, come back and talk about what is before the Supreme Court and uh, what changes could be afoot based on some of these decisions. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Monday, October 3rd, is the first day of the Supreme Court's fall term, and the court is getting ready to hear some extremely controversial cases. First will be Moore versus Harper, which threatens to rewrite the rules governing federal elections and which could give state legislatures nearly unlimited power to skew presidential elections. Second will be Merrill versus Milligan, which could usher in a period of racial gerrymandering that the country has never before seen. And the court also plans to hear two cases that could seriously undercut the government's ability to protect the environment and that could erase legal safeguards intended to halt the cultural genocide of indigenous people. We're joined by Kim Keenan. Kim is an adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel of the NAACP. Welcome back, Kim. Hi there. Oh, it's always great to have you. Thanks for joining us. The last session of the Supreme Court seemed to be, and excuse the term, but it seemed to be an orgy of right-wing excess. Now the, now the court is, is going to look at giving state legislatures, which have never been bastions of sanity and cooperation, especially in elections, unlimited power over those elections. It's going to look at racial gerrymandering. Should we expect anything but what the court has already shown about itself? Why would the court this year be any different from the court that it was three months ago? When people show you who they are, believe them. And this is the rule hitting the road, because there's no question that they've made it clear what they think. Apparently, they missed civics lessons. This is why we got to get them back into schools. The reason why we have three forms of government is so that we can have checks and balances, not unchecked and unbalanced. That's what these cases reflect. I am not hopeful that they will get it right. I think that the most we can hope for is that it won't be as bad as it seems like it might be. And do you think that that this will be bad? I mean, we're looking at, at a pretty pretty conservative six to three. It's not like it's not like uh, Chief Justice Roberts' uh, uh, vote has the authority that it had even a year or a year and a half ago. Do you expect the worst? Yeah, I do. I think they're going to have to really break it thoroughly so that it can be fixed. I think that they have politicized their court. They've taken away the really moral high ground that the court has. Because if you look back over the history of the Supreme Court, so many of the justices of the past that we thought would be conservative or liberal or whatever really came in and said, I take this job serious. The American rule of law, and I'm going to follow the law and not what I would like the law to be. But I think we have a, 
a group now who decided that they know best how America should be with no real practical experience about what these things will look like. And when you start to take away um, the power of the governor, the power of the courts to check in on what a legislature is doing, then, then by definition, you're dismantling the America that we know. So, Kim, walk us through these two major cases. Let's start with this, the first one, Moore versus Harper. Uh, Moore v. Harper could change the very nature, really, of presidential elections. It seems to me that the solution to our election problem is at the federal level. But what do I know? I'm, I'm not an expert. It, it, if, if the authority to count votes, to certify elections, uh, ends at the state legislature— especially in places like Arizona, Florida, Wisconsin, even Pennsylvania. That seems like a recipe for disaster, does it not? It is a recipe for disaster, and you're absolutely right. That's why these cases, I mean, you know, it's like they slip in under the night, but these cases are very key to how our democracy proceeds. You know, I think a lot of what the justices think is that, you know, there isn't a problem, and I'm not sure what America they live in that they don't recognize that there is truly a problem that a lot of these legislatures are so unbalanced, so biased, that even the counting of a vote um, could come out in a way that nobody could even imagine. And I, I think it's foreseeable. I think that um, the history, since they love to go back in history, they need to go back and see that when things are put in the hands of these state legislatures, you, you get really bad results. And again, the reason why America's system of one person, one vote is so powerful is people believe that that's what happens. You know, it's not just the result, it's that people have faith in the result. And if you take away that, right, because that's what you'd be doing by putting it in the hands of people who are willing to do anything for the outcome that they desire and for the power that it creates, then you, you turn us into a world where it's, you know, who can, who can bend the rules the best is really what it will come down to. And I, I, I really don't, I don't know why they think this, but I do think the underlying theme of this sort of the states can handle it themselves is that they really don't see it. They don't live in a world, they haven't been exposed to a world where this is a real problem to them. They think that the voting rights laws are, are some sort of candy that's being held out to people of color. But I got this for a if it hurts people of color, it hurts white people, too. So they better figure it out fast um, that, that this is not, not what we're intending. Kim, the, the second case, Merrill versus Milligan, deals with racial gerrymandering. Frankly, I'm surprised it took this long to, uh, to make its way all the way to the Supreme Court. State legislatures have been increasingly bold in their willingness to racially gerrymander congressional districts. Just look at what we saw, what, uh, a year ago in Tennessee, what we saw recently in North Carolina, in Texas. Is there any hope here, do you think? Or should we get used to the reversal of the creation, in many cases, the, the court-mandated decision to create um, majority black or majority Hispanic districts? Are those days over? When they gutted the Civil Rights Act, this was inevitable. Who, if you remember when it happened, and they literally 
they literally took out the there in the act, and this is what you get. This this is this is the outcome that the people who were yelling when that happened were worried about, and here it is right here in front of us. And if they continue to gut ability of people of power to vote, people of color to vote and have it matter, then they will continue to dismantle how America sees elections. And and you know it's so funny we talk about this election in Ukraine that Russia is putting forth and every and I love it in all the American publications it's like the sham election the sham vote well we're going to start to see that you know it's what it's one thing that um cast aspersions abroad but it's another thing to look in the mirror and find out that you know the history of voting in our country you could work on voting right 10 years ago 50 years ago yesterday and still the same dirty tricks the same you know, really trying to gut the power of people of color, people, women, the, the everybody to vote freely and fairly. And until we get that right, when we go abroad and say, oh, yours was a sham, you know, people are going to start to come here and say, isn't yours a sham, too? I think that I saw some memes on some of the... Um, you know, like Instagram, where, where they, they walk up to some of these, like, Florida governors and say, well, isn't your election going to be a sham, too? And they're like, I'm not going to talk about that. Oh, Texas, all those guys. I mean, they don't seem to realize that they are setting in motion something that will literally become corrupt. I'm so glad you said that because it's the perfect segue to what I wanted to say next. I was talking to a, a, a longtime friend of mine last night who's very political, and I was complaining about uh, these this racial gerrymandering thing and how it's just going to come back and bite these guys, right? I said, tell me it's going to come back and bite them because I'm really worried about this. And he said, "In the said, this is so important too, and I, I wish I had thought of it. In the event of a watershed election, which happens every 20 years or so, think 1974, 1980, uh, 2002, or was it 2000? No, I'm sorry, 1994. Anyway, where there's just massive turnover in the House of Representatives and sometimes in the Senate. The way the Republicans have gerrymandered these districts is instead of having um, safe Republican districts, let's say Republicans were getting 60%. They gerrymandered it so they can still win the race with 53 or 54%. But then they wipe out safe minority districts to do that. The problem is when there's a watershed election and there's an overwhelming vote for the Democrats, those races that the Republicans had been winning with 53 or 54 percent, all of a sudden they lose with 48 or 49 percent. So so my friend said, look, if it's a watershed election and there's a wave those seats that they would have otherwise won closely, they lose closely. So instead of losing five or 10 seats, they lose 50 or 60 seats, which is exactly what happened in those previous watersheds. So he said this could come back to bite them, and it could come back to keep them out of power for a decade or more. We just have to wait and see. First, we have to wait and see if the Supreme Court does the right thing here. Secondly, we have to wait and see if the Supreme Court doesn't do the right thing, if the Democrats are patient enough to wait for a watershed and in the intervening years 
build something at the grassroots, uh, starting with the state legislatures. What do you think? I think you just said there has to be a first miracle at the Supreme Court, and, you know, we, we haven't been getting any miracles from there. There may be miracles, but they're not there. Um, and then we need a second miracle, which is that it has to go so badly, so incredibly badly, um, that you know, that's what leads them to lose their power because they've squandered it on something that literally is the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. Um, I think miracle number two is more likely than the miracle at the Supreme Court because I really believe they, they have an entrenched you know, you're not supposed to come to the Supreme Court with your own entrenched beliefs, but to follow the law. And I believe that many of these people have such an entrenched belief that there's, you know, that there's no reason not to let the states do it. Of course, they'll be fair. Of course, I mean, they're presuming fairness that has not ever been there. And if they cared as much about history as they say they do, they'd see that the history is really awful. So... Um, I think the second one, I think that's something really bad. But I also say this to you, a caution to you about that watershed event. It's not going to be that way everywhere all the time. Even in places, there will be places in the country, you know, something that happens in Texas doesn't land the same way it does in New York. Something that happens in Florida does not land the same way in California. So even though it may be a watershed event, you will still see pockets of a result that doesn't make sense because the people of that place perceive the issue in a way that may not give you a watershed result. So it's something to think about. You know, I've traveled this this beautiful country from sea to shining sea, and I can tell you there is a Texas way to look at things. There is a Florida way to look at things. There's a, a, um, a Michigan way to look at things. And I think sometimes we forget that we are not monolithic, which is why we need a clear centrally created system for how we do this so that even when people are dying to get it wrong, they have the opportunity to get it right. There you go. Tell us about uh, a little bit about these other two cases that the court's going to take up. One deals with indigenous people and cultural genocide. What's that all about? Well, you know, we haven't done so well with our indigenous people issues. And so these cases really, um, really lock in a way of doing things that uh, doesn't move us forward, but really takes us backward. And it's really going to be important for us to say who we are as a people. Uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about tech and I tell people, you know, if we leave one of these cultures behind, if we leave Native Americans behind, which we have, and every marker that you can come up with, and we keep doing things to, to keep that tide going, then, then we might as well be saying we want to create cultural genocide. So these cases are an opportunity to try to stem that tide and try to not leave anybody behind. We really need to be living in a world where we're not leaving anyone in America behind. Yeah, especially the original indigenous Americans, seems to me. Um, Donald Trump, in my view, did untold damage to the environment in four short years as president. And the courts over that same period justified many of his actions. Do you think there's any chance of this court turning that around? Is it even possible, do you think, for this court to all of a sudden uh, become environmental protectors? No. <laughs> They've made it clear. They 
they don't seem to think that Mother Nature can get mad at them when all around us, we, I mean, you know, even the weather here in Washington right now, you know, it's so, you don't know what it's going to be. Sometimes it's hot when it should be cooler. Sometimes it's cool when it should be hot. Um, you know, the, the, the Mother Nature is telling us, giving us all kinds of signs that we're going in the wrong direction, but yet we still keep going in the wrong direction. I have no hope that the Trump court people um, have figured that out. I'm not sure why they don't believe in science or evolution or any of that stuff, but um, I'm hopeful that every time they get it messed up, that the people who really care about this will step up and step out and advocate so that it's in their face because this this is definitely the wrong direction. Nancy Brennan, who uh, was the the daughter of uh, former Supreme Court Justice John Brennan, and Nancy became the the founder and first director of the Brennan Center, died this morning. Uh, she was a giant figure in um, in areas like sentencing reform and prison reform and uh, civil liberties. Uh, the Brennan Center, frankly, is is her legacy. Uh, do you think that the time for the Bre- for the Brennan Center and other organizations like it has passed? Do you think that partisan politics has defeated the Brennan Center's ability to actually influence policy and make positive changes in the country? Pray not. Yeah, me too. I was sorry to see her go. She was in her she was in her seventies. Let me look here. She was seventy. I think it was seventy three years old. Worked quietly uh, to uh, to to strengthen the legacy that her father left and the 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 good works that the Brennan Center has done uh, in the name of John Brennan. Not John Brennan. Um, oh my God! I have John Brennan on the brain. Uh, help me out here. Justice. I'm going to say Justice Brennan. <laughs> um, it, it can't be for naught after after all these years. It just seems like it would be such a detriment to the country. And the not, he, he was a great man. He's exactly the legacy that I'm talking about of people who didn't just go in and say, this is the way I think it should be. And this is what how I'm going to rule every time. Yeah. William Brennan. William Brennan. It just came to me. OK, we are going to leave it there. We were very happy to be joined by Kim Keenan. I always enjoy Kim's visits. Kim is an adjunct professor at George Washington University and the former general counsel of the NAACP. Thanks for joining us. Uh, You know, uh, Michelle, we've got still a couple of minutes, and I know you have tried to talk at least three times about this uh, situation with uh, Alec Baldwin. Oh yeah! Now you make um, we, me. We haven't had. <laughs> you make haven't me sound had a chance to do like it. a Baldwin watcher. Yeah, well, this is this the headline that came up just as we were leaving uh, the show yesterday that Alec Baldwin and others could face charges in this shooting that happened on the set of the movie Rust. Um, so this comes from the Santa Fe District Attorney's Office, who have requested funding for possible prosecutions and has said that up to four people, including Alec Baldwin, could be charged. Uh, She hasn't said that they definitely are going to be charged, but she's made this funding request uh, if charges are warranted. Uh, And a document attached to this funding request said one of the possible defendants is well-known movie actor Alec Baldwin. 
So this is the sheriff's office that has been looking into the death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins for almost a year. She was shot uh, a, a year ago next month. Um, Alec Baldwin has said some very strange things in the aftermath. Um, you know, I don't think there's any doubt. Uh, again, I, I do not think that Alec Baldwin ever thought there was live ammunition in the gun. You know what I mean? I don't think this is what is going to be yeah, a question. I, I agree with that. But he did right. say he did that, make that weird statement about how uh, he said he didn't pull the trigger. He would never point a gun at someone on a movie set and pull the trigger. I mean, sh- people do that. I feel like people do that all the time. <laughs> I feel like he was supposed to. I mean, the shot was him pointing the gun at the camera. Um, so that seems a little bit odd. But, you know, I, I think what this is going to have to do with if there are charges brought is going to be, you know, ne- negligence on the set. And Mr. Baldwin, yeah. as a producer, is um, probably going to have to answer for that if, you know, if there are criminal charges made. I think uh, I would have to assume the armorer is someone who might come up here. There was a bunch of um, reporting on the armorer back when that happened who, you know, at least according to the angle of a bunch of reports was, was pretty inexperienced and uh, maybe had gotten her job because I think her father was a very well-known armorer. Exactly right. A lot of speculation that there was, uh, you know, safety. There was a lot more fun being had than uh, safety being observed on the set. I think you're right. You know, like you, I've followed this uh, this case closely just for a, a whole bunch of different reasons, one of which is that I just don't like Alec Baldwin at all. Yeah. Um, in the event that he's charged with a crime, I can't imagine it being anything more serious than, than negligence. But now, I mean, negligence armorer, that results in someone's death that's, could that, that, carry I mean, a serious that, consequence. The, it could be. And in the case of the armor, it could be second degree manslaughter, which, you know, might carry a penalty of three years in prison. That's a big deal. That's mm-hmm. that's a real crime. It's a felony. Um, I'm not sure really what they can get him for if they determine that he truly believed that either the gun wasn't loaded or that it was loaded with a blank. Right. You know, it all comes down to criminal intent. I don't think there was any criminal intent here. but. No. There was clearly negligence, and uh, I, I think probably somebody's going to have to pay. Yep. Now, it was interesting to me in this New York Times article that ran this morning that they kept stressing that the prosecutor has not made a decision to prosecute. But in a statement she made, she began one sentence with, in the event of prosecutions, comma. And so I think that's what he's so worried about. I I can just see Alec Baldwin at home right now pacing around a nervous wreck waiting to see what the prosecutor is going to finally determine. Yeah. I can't imagine him going to prison, though. No. I can imagine certainly the the armorer going to prison. Yeah. The other story that started circulating last night that was just really sad. um, Did you see there's there's a new book out about Anthony Bourdain? And, yeah, and, that's the, one of the saddest situations out there. Yeah, it really is. I don't know. I mean, Anthony Bourdain, you know, sure, he was a public figure. He was a, a beloved, uh, you know, a, a public figure, a TV star, a chef, an author. I don't and I, I understand that his wife um, or his ex-wife seems to have been cooperating with this book or certainly not trying to block its publication. Um but I don't know. He He's not a politician. He's not someone who is making policy decisions. I'm not sure that the world needs to know, you know, 
a, a bunch of CD details about his life after oh, he yeah. chose to end yeah. it. You know, I I just don't think that I, you know, they, there's the sort of public interest argument yeah. when you were talking about uh, people who make life and death decisions. But this was just a, you know, this was just a dude who everybody really liked because he had a, yeah. you know, charming and refreshing uh, and, um, you know, seemingly frank and straightforward take on on food and the world and. I think it's yeah. I I think it's sad that um I don't know that this is part of the the aftermath of that. So and you know he, he's got a he's got a daughter. Yeah. And that, like did, you're right. Do they need to lay out the the ugliness that we all have in our lives? Mm-hmm. They need to lay out his ugliness now when he can't defend himself or correct errors or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just it's not fair. We don't have to pretend that people are saints, but uh, a lot of us get the, you know, get the privacy to have our ugliness, you know, known known to a few people and and dealt with by them and not aired after our death. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty sad. You know, and I, and I will say that that Kitchen Confidential, which was Anthony Bourdain's first book, it's what put him on the map. That was one of the best books I have ever read. I and- bet you I read that book 20 20- more than 20. Maybe it's now 30 years ago. Yeah, we, and we I gotta, still think about it. We got to take this break, John. Also going to say A Cook's Tour. Fantastic book, too. We can talk more about Anthony Bourdain on the other side of this break. We're Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. And we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. And as promised, we are going to talk about a, a couple of different pipelines that are in the news, one a lot more than the other. We are going to talk about how, I think anyway, Americans are misled when it comes to government spending and um when, you know, the the wool might be pulled back from people's eyes. We are going to talk about what's going on at the U.S. Pacific Island Summit, where it seems like some small nations are standing up for their interests a little bit more than the Biden administration might have wanted or anticipated. Joining us for all of these conversations is labor attorney, human rights activist and author Dan Kavalik. Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I mean, John and I have talked a bit about we talked about Nord Stream yesterday. We talked about the the CIA coming out and apparently um, whispering to reporters at Der Spiegel that uh, they've been warning about this possibility all along. Um, but uh, it was only after we left the studio yesterday that I noticed that former Polish defense minister and current European Parliament member Radek Sikorski had actually tweeted, thank you, USA, with a picture of the churning surface of the ocean after the explosions. And I want to ask what I mean, it sounds silly to ask, what do you make of this? Because I, it is so obvious, but it's so obvious you think he can't possibly just be doing this, right? There, there must be something I'm missing. You can't possibly have a European member of parliament, former Minister of Defense for Poland, saying in public, thank you, America, for committing sabotage. Yeah, it's very strange. And it's 
it leads one to yeah wonder whether he knows something that the rest of us don't know. You saw today that NATO strangely just uh, put out some advertisement about its new unmanned deep sea weapons program or Did something, it? which is kind of yeah wow. Yeah. Of course. Pe- People are saying, well, did you do that on purpose? Are you bragging? You know, um, so something's funny is going on. Obviously, if I, you know, if I were a detective, uh, the U.S. would be my, of course, prime suspect here. Um, Some people are obviously trying to blame it on Russia. I don't see how they benefit from this. I don't see how Germany benefits from it. I could see Ukraine doing it, of course, because I do think that in the end, um, the potential for reopening uh, the gas supplies from Russia into Europe is probably a good bargaining chip for Russia with Ukraine mm-hmm. in trying to end the war. You know, without that, they, they lose a huge bargaining chip with both Ukraine and Europe and NATO. Um, I don't know. Will we ever know what really happened? I, I don't know. I think, though, everyone agrees that it was sabotage like that. That isn't disputed. The yeah. question is, who did it? Yeah. It's wild. The other interesting thing is that Sikorsky is married to Anne Applebaum, who is an American journalist who writes for The Atlantic. Uh, she's been around for a while. She has done stints with The Economist and with The Washington Post. And she's recently been putting out articles with headlines like other regimes will hijack planes, too, about uh, Belarus. Uh, and, you know, basically over and over, conveying the idea that beautiful, good, naive America still believes in a world protected by treaties, by border guarantees, and by the norms and rules of the liberal world order, to quote one of these stories, which, again, you would presume does not include blowing up the infrastructure of other countries that you're not at war with to send a message. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to ask your thoughts on this woman. You know, she is a journalist, right? She's not making policy, but she is um, a pretty major media figure, especially when it comes to uh, U.S. relations with Russia and Eastern Europe, writing, you know, on one hand that the United States is the sort of last bulwark against uh, against lawlessness and that, you know, we we have to uh, stand up against this lawlessness, lest other regimes uh, retain their sense of impunity, uh, that they are going to continue to steal, blackmail, torture and intimidate inside their countries and inside ours. Uh, you know, the, the contradiction there seems to be too striking to ignore. Well, yeah, and, I, and it seems to be just based on like, no version of reality that I understand. I mean, the U.S. being some sort of bulwark for the rule of law in the world, when, of course, the U.S. has sanctioned international criminal court justices for seeking to investigate U.S. crimes in Afghanistan, when the U.S. stole $300 billion from Russia when it invaded Ukraine. I mean, who gave the U.S. the right to do that? Or the U.S. stole Sitco from um, Venezuela, um, or stole $7 billion on its way out of town, out of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, there, there's no evidence the U S uh, supports the rule of law at all. In fact, it, it may be the most lawless country in the world, which still baffles me as to how people can believe that it's somehow this bastion of civilization and, and, and the rule of law, but I guess they do. But yeah, of course. And at the same time, if they did blow this up, it would be another they did blow up this pipeline. It's just more evidence that 
of how lawless they really are. Yeah. On the topic of Ukraine, also, um, it was reported yesterday that the U.S. was preparing another billion-dollar aid package for Ukraine, and there is uh, $12.3 billion in the stopgap funding bill that is making its way through Congress right now. It uh, passed a Senate procedural vote yesterday. $7.5 billion of that twelve will be in military assistance specifically. Um, and you have a recent poll by the Quincy Institute that found that the U.S. public, which, you know, is broadly supportive of the idea of supporting Ukraine, um, they do have some conditions for this support. 57% of likely voters strongly or somewhat supported the U.S. pursuing diplomatic negotiations as soon as possible to end the war, even if it requires Ukraine making compromises with Russia. Um, 32% were opposed to this idea. 58% um, somewhat or strongly opposed the idea of providing aid to Ukraine at current levels if there are higher gas prices and a higher cost of goods in the U.S., only 33% want aid to continue under these conditions. So, you know, the U.S. populace wants the government to be involved in negotiating for peace and not only arming the conflict. Unfortunately, uh, we don't seem very interested in that. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had these reports, you know, coming from Fiona Hill, right, uh, that it was uh, Boris Johnson who stepped in to blow up a, a possible negotiation between Russia and Ukraine. Um, and so I think it's interesting that when it comes to funding public health programs, for example, or education programs or Social Security, you know, every a uh, member of our government involved will go on cable news programs and say, whoa, 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 guys, we're not made of money. We got to scrutinize every dime. But when it comes to military aid, you just pick the money off the tree and, and nobody asks any questions about it. And I wonder, Dan, you know, why you think Americans continue to tolerate this kind of divergence in how spending is allocated and how it's discussed? Well, I mean, as you say, I think the polls generally show Americans aren't happy with it, that they'd like to see less military spending, more social spending. Why do they tolerate it? Because they tolerate everything. I mean, you have a very passive society that's not particularly politically active. Um, you know, if they vote, that's, you know, considered a huge um, act. Mm -hmm. um, they certainly don't protest much, certainly don't protest against wars anymore, as far as I can tell. It, I mean, I think they're not happy with it, but I think they feel very demoralized and I think they feel incapable of changing policy. You know, I think they feel like the government doesn't care what they think. And I think they're absolutely correct about that. Yeah. Um, I think that's more the problem. But I mean, I do think people are frustrated. You know, there was a report last year. I think it was one in six Americans lived in poverty. Um, in Pittsburgh, it was one in five where I live. And the downtown where I live is just filled with homeless people. And of course, you have polio coming back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, there's a lot of things we could be spending our money on in this country and to spend billions of dollars on a war that by the way, is probably not going to change. That is to say, Russia's probably going to win anyway, and you're just throwing money away and lives, throwing the Ukrainian lives away um, on a pointless venture. Um, 
of course, I think people are increasingly unhappy with this. But again, I just don't think they know what to do to change it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I agree. This is sort of always a problem where you think, surely this can't last. But I think that, you know, with the parameters sort of set as the, we have these two political parties, the Republicans and Democrats, that is the extent of the political spectrum and no other, you know, no ideas existing on, on either end of those points can even be discussed. There just doesn't seem to be for people a political way out and nobody wants to contemplate any other kind of way out. And so you just, you know, keep putting one foot ahead of the other. And you keep supporting your party even when they betray you. I mean, look at the Supreme Court decision, you know, over the summer that overturned Roe. People were saying, oh, you overturned Roe. We're going to tear the country down. Well, there, there wasn't actually much of a reaction to it. There were a couple days of protest here and there. Yeah. Uh, nothing very significant. And by the way, no one is willing to protest the Democrats who could codify Roe through an act of Congress. No one's protesting them, right? They blame everything on Trump, won't hold their own party accountable, and will still vote blue no matter who. And the Democrats will never deliver on the promise to codify Roe. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the political situation is is pretty bleak, again, because people— I think, one, don't understand how politics works, and two, to the extent they do, just really aren't willing to do anything about it. Yeah. Um, I want to return to the topic of pipelines here, because this is a story that isn't getting a lot of attention. The Keystone XL pipelines legal drama is still unfolding, uh, and uh, it, someone has been appointed to oversee uh, the international tribunal that is going to assess the $15 billion case Canadian company TC Energy is bringing against the U.S. government for canceling that pipeline. The case is being arbitrated under the North American Free Trade Agreement, and I think this offers us an opportunity to look at how these big free trade agreements work. And so I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that, about how this, what this international legal drama tells us about uh, the interaction between corporations and governments under these free trade agreements and how, you know, they might be creating some obstacles for things like climate change mitigation or uh, improved labor conditions or other actions that uh, democratically elected governments might want to take that are important, but that might uh, initially be unprofitable. Yeah, well, uh, you know, having worked for the steelworkers for 26 years, we, we, we said at the very beginning that the danger of the, a free trade agreement like NAFTA and the creation of things like uh, the WTO, is that, uh, yes, national laws would have to give way to corporate interests and that environmental, labor, other types of regulations uh, would be undermined by this. And of course, we were correct. And like you said, you're, you're seeing now that it's possible that um, an oil company could could force the hand of the U.S. to to reopen that pipeline, even though, of course, the U.S. has made a decision not to do that based on indigenous rights, environmental rights. And so, uh, yeah, this is a real problem. In fact, I think the first, if I'm not mistaken, one of the big uh, symbols of this fight early on in the late 90s were turtles. 
because uh, there were some regulations that were made to protect turtles and companies got those overturned in the interest of them being able to operate freely. So in any case, yeah, no, it is a real issue. And, you know, was, um, the late Charles Kernigan, one of the great anti-sweatshop activists, always used to say, you know, um, company rights and trademarks, they have, re you know, th those are actually enforced through a body like the WTO, which has the power to enforce its decisions. You know, he says human rights doesn't, you know, there's nowhere where to go for human rights where you have an enforceable uh, right to something. Um, and it just shows the power of corporations in the U.S. and the world, mm -hmm. in truth. Yeah, exactly. Um, shifting gears now, I want to talk about what this Biden administration is trying to do today with its U.S. Pacific Island Country Summit. Uh, leaders from 12 Pacific Island countries are to attend. Uh, representatives are being sent from others. Uh, New Zealand and Australia are observing. But it is already kind of a mess. You have the Marshall Islands and the Solomon Islands refusing to sign on to agreements with the U.S. You have Palau, Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands saying what you are proposing economically is not enough. And so to sum up, you know, we, we have this um, summit launching today. It's going to be over two days. The Marshall Islands a few days ago suspended talks with the United States on renewing our strategic partnership, which is called the Compact of Free Association Agreement, because the Marshall Islands says the U.S. has not addressed the economic, environmental and health fallout of U.S. nuclear weapons testing on its atolls for more than a decade uh, in, from the 1940s into the 1950s. The Solomon Islands has told other attendees at this summit that it's not planning to sign the current iteration of this 11-point declaration that the U.S. has prepared as a framework for its enhanced engagement in the region. Solomon Islands, of course, um, was recently in the news for signing an agreement with China that the United States didn't like. And Palau, Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands have written a note to the United States to say the economic assistance that is in the framework as it stands now is inconsistent with the contributions of our islands toward the security and stability of the region, which also supports U.S. interests in the region. The U.S. proposed economic assistance seems predetermined and based on insufficient analysis. To put it simply, the U.S. economic assistance is insufficient. And so, you know, in these different objections, you have some very deep history, right? We have nuclear testing in the Pacific. We have uh, the Solomon Islands and its relationship with China. We have the way the United States and Western nations, you know, try to use Pacific Islands as little mini aircraft carriers. But Taken as a whole, this is starting to look like a region that knows it has other potential partners and is not prepared to take just whatever is offered anymore. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on on the rocky start to this summit. Yeah, well, we are witnessing this is part of the um, emergence of the multipolar world uh, that's emerging uh, and as you say, these Pacific Island nations that for many years had no one else to turn to but the U.S. now knows they can turn to China and that by turning to China or threatening to turn to China, that that's a huge threat to the United States, who is ha convoking 
this conference to check China. It's all about China. Everything in the Pacific is about China mm-hmm. and halting China's influence. But, the, you know, the U.S. apparently wants to do it on the cheap. And these Pacific <laughs> Islands are saying, well, we're not going to accept it. You know, uh, we want you to pay for it if you don't want us to work with China. Mm-hmm. So China's providing an incredible bargaining chip for countries like that. Uh, frankly, in the way the Soviet Union did for a long time. And honestly, I think that's to the better. I think, you know, countries are going to be better off, smaller countries, because they do have this ability, frankly, to play one superpower off the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to ask, you know, I I think that it has been interesting over the course of this UN General Assembly meeting so far, uh, a theme that's been emerging has been countries saying very pointedly, we are sovereign and we are going to partner with whoever we want to partner with. Uh, Xiomara Castro of Honduras made this a big part of her speech to the UNGA. Um, Mackie Saul, the uh, leader of the African Union and president of Senegal, uh, very pointedly said this in her speech. And of course, this is all about uh, Russia and I think China in particular. And the United States, you know, likes to sanction different countries. We've got sanctions on North Korea. We've got sanctions on Venezuela. We've got sanctions on Iran and on Syria. And I'm wondering, Dan, you know, it it is one thing to sanction these countries, which are, are, you know, have various resources to offer, but aren't necessarily economic powerhouses. When you try to separate countries from sort of the global economic engine in China, uh, I, I think that is what is causing some of this pushback. But I'm wondering if your sort of historical memory goes back a little bit further. If you remember a period of time when, you know, so many countries are standing up and saying, you can't actually tell us who to partner with. You can't tell us that we have to, you know, uh, put all our eggs in, in your basket forever when what you're trying to take away from us is something that is, you know, is so significant. Do you remember, you know, see, seeing this kind of... Um, this sort of statements repeated across regions like this. Well, again, during the Cold War, there were certainly countries that were taking that position regarding trying to have a relationship with the socialist bloc. Mm-hmm. Um, but they paid for that. They often paid with it through coups and, 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 and interventions by the United States. I mean, in my lifetime, and I think well before, uh, trying to do that has always been fraught with peril. Um, countries try to do it, but again, many are really uh, punished greatly for that attempt. And uh, unfortunately, that continues to this day. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I I think, um, but again, I think with the emergence of China, I think there's more of an option that, that countries have now than they have had in decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm hmm. And what do you think this, uh, you know, portends for the pivot to Asia, which, of course, we have, you know, it was Obama who announced uh, the U.S. pivot to Asia uh, at least a decade ago. I think I forget what what the exact year was. Um, But, you know, Biden is once again saying, oh, no, no, we're we're going to reengage with Asia. We're, We're coming back. This is the very first U.S. Pacific Islands summit that we've ever had. Uh, what do you think? What do you think this, uh, you know, foretells for the future of the U.S. relationship with that region? 
I'm not sure what it foretells. I mean, again, this just seems so desperate, honestly, on the part of the U.S. It's kind of like we forgot about you until now China is a power and now we're going to pretend to care about you. I mean, you know, these are all like kind of last minute attempts for the U.S. to try to cling to some type of influence in the world when most of the world's moving away from it. I do think the world is looking east now. Mm-hmm. And we see this with the, you know, after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, that while, the, of course, the West tried to claim that most of the world was with them on it, when he actually looked at, it, you know, stack, it, it, the country stacked up in a way that showed the vast majority of the world was actually against the West on this mm-hmm. and were unwilling to sanction Russia. And why? Because they see Russia and China and Iran to a lesser extent as a, frankly, now more viable option than the U.S. I mean, I think the world sees the U.S. in decline and sees these types of moves as quite desperate. Yeah. Very much like the U.S. attempt to, you know, now saunter up to Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela to get oil. I mean, I, everyone sees you know- it as... It's yeah. interesting to me, like here again, you have this first ever summit. It's a it's a regional summit. It's the U.S. saying we're we're coming to engage with your region. And, you know, they're they're hitting some little stumbling blocks. It's not going as easily as they might have liked. Um, it puts me in mind of the uh, summit of the Americas that was held in California what a couple of months ago where the United States decided that it wasn't going to invite uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, or Venezuela. And then you had a couple of other countries going, well, okay, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to come either. You either deal with all of us as a region or you don't. Haiti is here, but uh, but Cuba can't be? Come on. And so, you know, it is interesting to me that on one hand, we have seen uh, some regions uh, tell the United States, we're not going to take just whatever you offer. We're, we're not going to accept, uh, you know, your quote unquote, like values based foreign outreach that we all can see is incredibly hypocritical. And the region that has uh, been, you know, p- pretty much in lockstep with the United States when it comes to its economic and foreign policy goals is Europe. And Europe's headed for a really bad winter. You know, it's not it's not really good advertising. I feel like if you say, yeah, here, this is what this is what happens to uh, to the block that uh, it, it does what we ask them every time you, uh, you know, inflation is out of control. You can't heat your houses in the winter. We don't know when energy is coming back. Uh, it, you know, people are getting furloughed. It's uh, it's interesting to watch. It is. I mean, and what you're saying is is quite stunning. I mean, Western Europe has based the U.S. has basically given enough them enough rope to hang themselves with, and they've been happy to hang themselves. Mm-hmm. It's it's something to watch. And as you say, the rest of the world sees it, and they're like, "Wow, with friends like that, you don't need enemies." It actually reminds me. There is a quote by Kissinger who said at one point, he said something like, "It is dangerous to be an enemy of the U.S., uh, but to be a friend." is fatal. Yeah. yeah. And we're seeing that right now. Um, and yeah, so who wants to be friends with a country that will, you know, ask you to destroy your own economy? Yeah. It's pretty incredible. It is. Uh, Dan Kavalik, always great to talk to you. Dan Kavalik is a labor attorney. He's a human rights activist. He's an author. Where should our listeners go to uh, to get your your most recent book or any of your books? Well, my most recent, they can go to Clarity Press. My latest book is on Nicaragua. They can also go to skyhorsepublishing.com, where most of my books are. 
and they can go to Twitter at Daniel M. Kavalik. The book on Nicaragua must be pretty recent, right? It comes out in January. Ah, fantastic. Okay. So I was like, I don't have a title for that one yet. I got to find out what that is. Okay, cool. We'll we'll (laughs) keep an eye out for it in January. Dan Kavalik, thanks so much. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll talk to you in a minute. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said yesterday that he supports legislation already passed in the House and now under consideration in the Senate, aimed at preventing a repeat of the January 6th riot. The bill would update the Electoral Count Act and would limit the role of the Vice President and members of Congress in declaring the winner of the presidential race. This bill passed with the support of only eight Republicans in the House, but McConnell's support means that it will pass the Senate easily. New York Times journalist Maggie Haberman's new book, Confidence Man, which is coming out soon, apparently has a passage of President Trump asking a stunned Defense Secretary Mark Esper if the United States could bomb suspected drug manufacturing sites in Mexico. The suggestion came from the Assistant Secretary of Health, Brett Giroir, a member of the Public Health Service. Every time he met Trump, Giroir would wear his Public Health Service dress uniform, which confused Trump, who thought that he was in the military. And the last time we had our guest on the show, we promised each other that we would talk about prison reform. Well, in just the last two years, 57 prisoners, 57 in the Georgia state prison system have been murdered. In the same period, another 267 prisoners in other state systems and in the federal prison system were also murdered. Why are American prisons so violent? And if the Justice Department is trying to create a balance between punishment and reform, why does it have nothing to show for the reform part? We're joined by Daniel McAdams. Dan's the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. He served as the Foreign Affairs, Civil Liberties, and Defense and Intelligence Policy Advisor to Congressman Ron Paul, MD, from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement at the end of 2012. Welcome back, Dan. Greetings, John. Greetings, Michelle. How are you? Doing great. Oh, we're so great. happy to have you. Yeah, great to be back. Thanks for joining us again. Great to be back. Well, let's start with Let's start with this modification of the Electoral Count Act. This is a very old law. It's been around for almost 200 years. It tells us how the Electoral College votes are supposed to be tallied. It's supposed to take place on January 6th of the year following the presidential election. Up until January 6th, 2021, it was just a formality. We know who the president is supposed to be. So what would this bill do to prevent another January 6th? It's a good question, you know, and, and I'll be honest with you. I don't think that the uh, that the vote was uh, on the up and up, but that's that's uh, something that's happened throughout history. As Dr. Paul talks about, his first election was stolen. He had to cha- he had to challenge it, and a judge finally found out that there were a lot of fake votes in there. So I don't believe the narrative that's being played. However, I do remember watching what happened 
with the pres with uh, outgoing President Trump's lawyers scrambling to do some some things that I thought were pretty crazy and pretty wacky. And it's like, okay, you hold an election and then your VP can can overturn it. So, I mean, if if you're going to correct some of these ambiguities, that's great. I think there's a bigger issue that's out there to be dealt with, which is that I think our elections are pretty crappy the way they're managed. And I say that as a former election observer. Um, So I think unless we strike the root and figure out what's wrong with our systems, uh, we're not going to really solve the problem. Uh, you know, but if this is a step in the right direction so that, you know, everybody doesn't look to Pence as their savior, then maybe then maybe that's a step in the right direction. You know, we have Bruce Fine on the show with some uh, regularity, and he always says that we don't have national elections here. We have 51 state elections held simultaneously with 51 different sets of rules. And he said that's just a system that is untenable over the long term. It's bound to have problems. And it's funny, over the years, we've had isolated problems come up, you know, maybe in in 1964, for example, there was this trouble with with the Mississippi electors and two of them weren't counted. In 1968, uh, one uh, was supposed to be a I forget what it was, a Wallace elector, and instead threw her support to Strom Thurmond. So we've got these odd problems that pop up every once in a while. But would you agree that what we have here is a system of 51 separate but simultaneous elections, and maybe we should be looking at that? Well, Bruce is a lot smarter than me, certainly when it comes to to legal affairs and the Constitution, so I don't presume to, to second-guess anything he says. I do like the idea of federalism. I do like the idea of the states being as separate as possible. Um, there are anomalies that do occur. Remember Lyndon Johnson, when he was elected senator, that was widely, widely considered uh, to be a, a fraudulent election. So we do have these happen oh, yeah. in history, and I, I guess you can't avoid it. Um, but I just, you know, I, I, I like the idea of having the 51 separate votes, um, you know, and if the states need to clean it up, it's, it's probably a heck of a lot easier to do it at a state level than to have one federal czar who may or may not have different political inclinations and obligations to oversee. But that's just my inclination. Dan, the Washington Post and the New York Times have been publishing vignettes from Maggie Haberman's new book. It's 607 pages long, this new book on Donald Trump called Confidence Man. Today, the Post is reporting that Brett Giroir, the Assistant Secretary of Health and a member of the National Health Service, repeatedly recommended that Trump bomb drug manufacturing sites <laughs> on the Mexico side of the border. Sorry, I can't see even say those words with a straight face. Defense Secretary Esper was apparently appalled by this. She says in the book that he just sat there slack-jawed as Trump told him, hey, I think I want to bomb Mexico. We, I think we should hit these sites in Mexico. Um, so it never happened. It would have been a major international incident if it had. Give us your thoughts on this, Dan. First, how – and this is a mystery to me. I spent a lot of time in government, 20 years in government, in national security, where I, I met with presidents and vice presidents and cabinet secretaries. How does a lowly assistant secretary of health even get into a meeting with the president of the United States? I, I never even heard of such a thing. And second – why would a president even consider something so patently illegal as bombing sites in a friendly country 
without that country's permission. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's pretty wacky. It's pretty crazy stuff. But I would argue it's not as crazy as blowing up a pipeline, which the U.S. may have just done. Right? Amen to that. <laughs> so these amen to that. The, the, the people, and you know better than anyone, John, the people that are inhabit these murky agencies. Uh, there's a lot of circular reasoning there, and they end up doing crazy stuff. But Trump did a lot of crazy stuff. I think because he was, you know, he was intellectually incurious in some ways. But look, I mean, when you when you assassinate Soleimani and destabilize the entire area for no gain when you when you think that well i better show that i'm tough so i'm gonna i'm gonna hit some bombs in syria even though we have no idea that this chemical attack was as they say it was and of course it wasn't so he, he did some dumb things like that this wouldn't surprise me as to how this guy got access maybe he was a buddy of jared's or something right <laughs> they were hanging out I and mean, you know how it works there john it's all about proximity if you can get proximity to Absolutely. the big guy Boom, you can sell the wackiest things. I actually had to read it twice. I had vaguely recalled Brett Gerois' name, and I was thinking Assistant Secretary of Health. Maybe he was Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health. And so I went back and looked, and I was like, oh, my God, he's wearing his National Health Service uniform. So it's this – I don't know if, if our listeners have ever seen somebody from the National Health Service. They're the ones that provide – Healthcare uh, in in prisons, for example, in federal prisons, uh, they're stationed around the country to to work on health policy and stuff. But they're members of it's like the the Peace Corps or the Foreign Service. This is the National Health Service, and so they they wear these these blue uniforms that look vaguely like like their naval uniforms, and you know they've got ranks and stuff on them. Uh, but they're not military. It's the National Health Service. And apparently every time this guy would would be able to get into the Oval Office, he made sure to dress improperly, inappropriately in his dress uniform. He was supposed to have been wearing a suit, uh, but he would wear his dress uniform. And this dress uniform apparently really impressed Trump that this guy looks like he's somebody. And uh, and so he was able to use that access to Trump. It's unclear from the clip in the in the post how he was able to uh, to get this access. But uh, but he did. And he was able, apparently, to influence the president of the United States. <laughs> I'm actually looking at a picture. I don't get it. I'm looking at a picture of him right now in his in his military-ish dress uniform. And I'm not an expert on the military. I could have been fooled myself. I mean, I'll be honest with you. So the guy, he's no dummy, right? If he, he knows that Trump, I need my generals. Remember, that's how Trump did until every single one of that's his generals right. stabbed him in the back. And then maybe he learned his <laughs> lesson. But he's an interesting guy, this this uh, Giroir. He, was, he came up through the... Um, pharmaceutical industry. He worked for DARPA. Um, so, I mean, uh, i.e. the deep state. So, uh, right. you know, it, it's it's probably a shame. It, it, well, you know, the thing is, presidents don't know everything. And that's just a fact. And whenever someone points out a gaffe from Biden um, that, like, for example, he didn't know that this woman, this congresswoman had died, like, that's the big gaffe of the day. And he mentioned her. You know what? These, I mean, Biden's got some problems, but these guys don't know everything. You know, I was a staffer on the Hill, a lot of other staffers. You, 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 you count yep. on having competent people around you because you're just you're balancing too many things on your brain, regardless of your age. And I think that was the real problem with someone like Trump. 
uh, is that he he didn't have people around him that were really on his team. They were on someone else's team, you know, or their own team. So I don't know. Maybe that explains it. You know, there could be something to that, because when you work for a president like that, your job is to protect the president, right? You're supposed to be that buffer. Um, You're supposed to be the person who keeps the president smart on whatever issue it is that you're an expert in. And I, I think you're right. I think Trump wasn't surrounded by people like that who uh, who appreciated their their role in some cases their once in a lifetime role uh, in the White House. Hey, the last time we had you on the show, Dan, we didn't have time to talk about prison reform. I noted in the intro that the Justice Department says that its goal in sentencing is to balance punishment with reform. That's a bad joke, of course. There is no such thing as reform in the system that we've given ourselves. Uh, So first, tell us what you think should be done and what you think can be done to reform the system that we have now. How can rehabilitation play a role? And let me let me add uh, a thought. You know, there's a there's a a warden at a state prison in Maine that uh, was a farmer before he was a warden, and so little by little he uh, expanded uh, land around the prison that could be used to cultivate vegetables. And he taught or ordered taught, uh, ordered that, that the inmates be taught in basic farming skills, you know, how to grow tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and stuff like that. Well, they've done so well for themselves that now they provide all of the fresh vegetables that they consume in the prison And the quality, of course, is light years ahead of what any other prison gets. And they're able to actually sell some of the vegetables that they have as surplus to the nearby town. That's a very unusual program. And it's not something, for whatever reason, that's being emulated in other prisons around the country. So with that said, do you think that training and rehabilitation can be implemented in the in the federal let's let's keep it to fed the feds this is the easiest it can be implemented in the federal program is there any way to make the system that we have better well two things i think first of all that's such a great story and you know people would say well they're there to be punished they shouldn't be out gardening you know this these people have a lot of them have broken lives and a lot of them have done some pretty terrible things um you know but if you can rebuild their confidence rebuild their sense of accomplishment these are people a lot of them that came from such horrific backgrounds you know uh, it's just terrible but the other thing i would say is you talk about prison reform just end the drug war i mean that would that would solve most of your problems you know you're always going to have a violent element in society that commits violent crimes and I obviously don't share the view that people who are who legitimately committed violent crimes should be should be let out easily. But certainly, you know, there are so many examples of people that have life sentences for a couple of marijuana cigarettes on them. Uh, you know, th- three strikes and you're out. So you get first of all, get rid of the drug war. You solve at least half of your problem. And then, as you point out in your question, spend some of that money that you're wasting on the uh, DEA, et cetera, et cetera, the, you know, the, the FBI, spend some of that on rehabilitation, helping people get over a medical problem called addiction. That's what Dr. Paul always says. It's a medical issue that people have. Um, a lot of the time it's a victimless crime, 
people that abuse themselves and they need help rather than prison. They come out of prison way worse and more violent than they went in. So, you know, it's a real issue. And I'm down here in southern Texas in the, the, a lot of things. A lot of the people talk about down here is that in the prison system down here, there's not air conditioning. And I don't know if you've ever been, you guys have ever been down here in the summer, but I could not yeah. imagine a yeah. more cruel and unusual punishment, even for the worst of the worst. You're not going to make them nicer. They're not going to come out, uh, you know, uh, no. good citizens if they've been literally roasting their brains off for a few years. So, yeah, I, yeah. I agree with you. There's a, there's a heck of a lot that can, be, that can be done, but we just need to change our priorities. You know, the, the just as an aside, Dan, the the air conditioning issue in Texas prisons actually made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And in the early 2000s, the Supreme Court ruled that the heat in Texas prisons is not cruel and unusual <laughs> unless it gets to over 112 degrees. Oh, jeez. Uh, well, when I, when I was in prison in Pennsylvania— we didn't have air conditioning either. The only air conditioning in the in the entire prison complex was in the guard booths and in the warden's office. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Otherwise, you were on your own. Now, I was lucky in that lucky in air quotes in that I was in the mountains of central Pennsylvania. So we only had, let's say, a half a dozen days a summer in the 90s. And I'll tell you, it was god-awful mm. hot <laughs> because – my housing unit didn't have windows. So you didn't know, is it day? Is it night? Is it raining or sunny? Or you don't, you don't have any idea, but my God, the heat. So people would just take their bath towels and soak them in cold water and then just wrap themselves in their bath towels and walk around like that all day long. Well, multiply that by, you know, X or, or 10, 12, 15 degrees hotter Every single day of the summer, which is the case in Texas, and then the Supreme Court rules that that's not cruel and unusual. It's no wonder people come out and they're angry. Yeah, yeah. And I'll add another thing. I'd love to hear your comment on this. You know, the the federal budget during the Jimmy Carter administration phased out funds for education and rehabilitation in the federal prison system. Those funds were never uh, brought back. So there, there are no funds for education. Like, you know, you hear these stories that you go to prison, you learn a trade. You can come out as a mechanic, an electrician, a, a plumber. That's nonsense. That's from the 50s and the 60s. That just doesn't exist anymore. And so what you have in their place are classes taught by prisoners. Now, they may be the history of Western movies, which was legitimately a, a class that was offered by some murderer that I was serving with who just loved Westerns and he would lecture about Westerns every day. I I decided to take one of the classes that was called um, real estate investing. I thought, okay, I'm interested in real estate. I don't have any money to invest, but this is a way to pass an hour a week. So I go to the first class and the guy up there uh, is is from my housing unit and he's giving his lecture about you know what you do this is this is the how you look for a property and then when you d- identify a property that you want this is what you do and he's giving his instructions and I raised my hand and I said wait a minute wait a minute you're advocating mortgage fraud you can't do that that's mortgage fraud it's felony <laughs> well how else are you supposed to get the property I was like what are you in here for he goes well 
mortgage fraud. <laughs> and I said, I'm not sitting through this. Oh my gosh. This is a serious, totally true story. You should have told them but you're in the But this is what people business. are up against. You should go into politics, Seriously. man. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, his his idea was that you you find some primo property. Um, you doctor up a deed to show that you own it. Then you borrow against it and then use that money to buy the property that you really want. It's like, you can't do that. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so anyway, do you think that there's any possibility that based on public opinion or the the reformation movement is there any reason to be hopeful that we can actually begin to reform the system that we've made for ourselves one of the problems i think we have is the disconnection between um i would say for example the military and the rest of society and the prison population and the rest of society i think most of the reason part of the reason why americans tend to be so hawkish is that they never see the consequences of of uh, being in favor of more war and more violence overseas you know it's they're so far removed the military families by and large these days are affected by the poverty draft uh you know and uh, you, it's just how it is and the same thing is true with the prison population oh these are the bad guys um, and it's not they don't usually get affected It's people from the inner cities, people from broken homes and, and broken backgrounds. So it's easy to not feel empathy uh, for both and to abuse both. Um, so I think um, I'm not a, a psychologist, but I think the problem might be deeper even than just um, reform on that level. We need to sort of rethink who we are as a society and rethink, you know, the, the violence that we embrace without even knowing it. Over the last 20 years, Dan, Congress has created 200 new crimes. I'm not talking about 200 new laws. I mean 200 new crimes. I looked this up the other day. And the Reason, uh, Reason Magazine has a terrific article about it. These are things that were legal last year that are felonies this year. Um, a couple of them are so ridiculous Things like, for example, for example, and I've told this story before, uh, a woman in Hawaii who would take tourists out on her boat to go whale watching. This woman worked for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, she takes some tourists out and uh, they come up on an orca eating a seal. And a couple of weeks later, the FBI knocks on her door. They say, did you take these tourists out? She said, yes. Did you see a, an orca eating a seal? Yes. Did you whistle at the whale? She said, did I whistle at it? No, I didn't whistle at it. Maybe somebody did. I don't know, like maybe to keep its attention or whatever. She said, but I, I videotape all this stuff and I sell the DVDs to the tourists. So she turns over the DVD to the FBI. A couple of weeks later, she is charged with a felony count of interfering with the feeding of a wild animal under the Endangered Species Act because somebody on her boat whistled at the whale. Now, this case dragged itself through the federal courts for six years. She finally took a plea to a misdemeanor for violating the Endangered Species Act. But in the meantime, she was fired from the Department of Commerce. She lost her federal pension. She lost her business. She lost her best friend who was in business with her. And, uh, and she had to leave Hawaii because she can't afford to live there anymore because of this court case. You know, it's a felony to to keep a, a fish that's uh, not big enough, for example, especially a fish like a flounder, for example, or a halibut. 
I mean, these are these are felonies that we've created. Is there any way back from this? And and I'll I'll add one thing. You should couple this these actions by by Congress with the fact that FBI agents don't get promoted by not arresting you. Federal prosecutors don't get promoted by not prosecuting you, right? There's an incentive to arrest you and to prosecute you. How do we get out of this death spiral of punishment? It's a great point, John, and you, you've just thoroughly depressed me, so I don't know. I was hoping to end on a high note, but, you know, as Dr. Paul always says, if you subsidize something, you'll get more of it. And essentially, that's what you're doing. You're subsidizing convictions over getting to the truth. And so you're getting a heck of a lot more convictions. I think a previous time I was on you guys' program, uh, <clears throat> you had the stats, John, like you usually do, about the conviction rate of people that are accused of a crime. And it's astronomical. It's, you know, we're number one. We're number one. Uh, and it just yeah. it just is terrible. The other thing about these, uh, these 200 new uh, crimes uh, is it also kind of reminds you of the old Soviet system, you know. All of these things are on the books, yeah. and they can be selectively enforced. If you're a bad guy, oh, that Kiriakou talking bad about the government. I don't like where he works. Well, let me see exactly. how many. You know, there's that famous uh, five felonies that you commit each day of your life. You know, and that's that's, right. that's the worrisome thing. It really is because they can just if if you're in their crosshairs, boom, they're going to find something to hit you with, as you know, right? Better than anyone. Indeed. <laughs> oh, they'll get you. Well, Daniel McAdams, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Dan is executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, a fantastic organization. Dan served as the Foreign Affairs, Civil Liberties, and Defense and Intelligence Policy Advisor to Congressman Ron Paul, MD, from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement at the end of 2012. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. I don't know if we have time to take a break. No, think, no, we I don't. don't. Think so. We've only got a couple we minutes haven't. left. Uh, John, I've been watching, uh, you know, going back in and, and keeping an eye on uh, some of the pictures and videos that are coming in from Florida of Hurricane I, Ian. It's scary. Right. Oh, boy. I'm going to look right. You know what? I've been so preoccupied since we started the show. I haven't even thought about doing that. No, Let's there see. are um, videos from uh, Fort Myers uh, that looks like, you know, parts of it are already flooded, cars abandoned. Wow. I'm pretty sure I've got the uh, the uh, location right. Sanibel Island getting whacked really hard. Yeah, I mean, it just, this is going to be an intense storm. It's going to be a, uh, you know, it, it, we <laughs> rarely do we quote Ron DeSantis uh, without some mockery, but he said it was going to be a nasty couple of days, and uh, he yeah. is correct. We didn't talk about this earlier when we talked about this, though, that, um, of course, Hurricane Ian has already hit and, and moved over Cuba, uh, wiping out electricity across the island, right? Yeah, Just absolutely did. wiping it out. Yesterday, they are um, slowly turning the power back on there. I think that uh, there have been two deaths. I just wanted to check in on Puerto Rico. Ten days after Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico, uh, about 345,000 customers are still without electricity. My goodness gracious. Yeah, which is... Just incredible. And, you know, I, I did read about an hour ago that Cuba has already brought up 10% of its electrical grid again. Mm -hmm. And God knows how long it's going to take Puerto Rico uh, to get back in gear, but the Cubans are already on it. Mm 
Yeah. I mean, again, it's it just if you never are able to recover from these disasters and if what happens is, pe- you know, people don't have enough money to continue investing in their own homes and that leaves your, you know, your beachfront property, your cities open to, you know, wealthy people who can come in and buy them out from under you, it really destabilizes society. And if you're completely unwilling to put in any kind of guardrails to prevent that from happening, you know, it is a lot more than sort of just physically digging out from under these disasters uh, that that is affected. Yeah, you're exactly right. Hey, John, I think and, you I, know, I just don't. Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. That's all. I was going to say I I don't understand why we are just unable to learn the lessons necessary uh, after each of these storms. Some, I mean, Florida is is ready certainly, but but. There are so many other things that we can do, especially for for a place like Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. and we just don't do it. Well, because a lot of this requires investment ahead of time. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Investment yes. ahead of time and better infrastructure that costs a little bit more money to put up. But that lasts longer. You know, I mean, you look yes. at in in Kentucky, like uh, a lot of these deaths could have been prevented and some of these communities would still have more buildings standing if everyone wasn't living in, in mobile homes because they're cheap. They're cheap and you right. can exploit people in them. So, you know, this is what happens. This is why, you know, uh, it, it, you, people, uh, whatever, there's a lot, there's a lots of metaphors here for like heating and cold countries. And, you know, you just have to insulate. You have to prepare. Being prepared ahead of time for these things allows you to respond to them. If you have a... Um, you know, a, a social safety net that you have actually invested in when you have a sudden surge of unemployment, you are able to ramp up and meet it instead of having people wait for weeks and months during the pandemic to get their unemployment checks, right? But it requires yeah. that you see these things as important and as not just a, a drain on your finances, but an important uh, aspect of well-being for your population that is worth the investment for when the emergency comes. Not just like, oh yeah, let's save a few pennies. We don't need that. And who right. cares if we fall down on the job when we actually need to? Because it's only the little people who are affected. Ugh. I went on. I, I went on right. for so long on that topic that now I'm not going to get to talk about Nevada wanting to use drones in its prisons. Did you see this story? Yeah, this was an important story. And it's because they just can't find enough people who want to be prison guards. Yeah. I mean, we might have to talk about this a, a little bit more uh, in a future show because it is pretty dire, right? Much as I, I think prison guard sounds like a yeah. terrible job and one that, you know, has the yeah. potential to turn the people who do it into terrible people. But uh, drones yeah. are not the solution. Just- no, drones are not the solution. And remember, too, that prison guards have... Um, one of the highest suicide rates of any job that exists. Yeah. Yeah. Awful. Awful. All right. Well, hey, we got something to start on tomorrow when we come back here, because that's all we've got time for today. want to say thanks to everybody who joined us. I uh, want to say to stay safe to everybody who is in Florida in the path of this storm. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> 